So glad you're here. Awesome crowd present already here at the uh, East Campus. I know we have a big crowd at the uh, online campus. And Mike and Darla welcome our latest members from Manhattan, Manhattan, Kansas. And Mike and Darla, you may not realize this, but the two of you and I are probably the only ones who've ever backpacked at Tuttle Creek right there north of Manhattan. Actually, I backpacked there quite a few times and sat out on the prairie and listened to the coyotes. You know, God's really blessed us when we started a year ago a campaign that we called Here, Near, and Far, or we like to say Here, Near, and Clear on the other side of the world. We had no idea that God in His sense of humor would say, okay, well, let's do it this way. Let's do it online. So actually now we have... Um, I think something like 160 small groups at North Boulevard, that is working through North Boulevard. We have a small group, it just started in Nolensville, Tennessee, not too far from Murfreesboro. We have a small group that meets uh, online in East Africa. I'm not making that up. That's a North Boulevard small group. I just found out this week we have a small group that's led by uh, Pete and Cindy Patton. So they live here in Murfreesboro. And the other members of their group are from Northern California, Oregon, Let's see if I get it right, Florida, New York State, and I think Colorado. So actually, God just took our here, near, and clear on the other side of the world, and He said, let's, let's do it in a way they weren't even thinking. Let's make an online church. And so through the online world, guys, let's give every single person a Jesus option. That's what we intend to do. So I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Glad everybody's with us. We're in Deuteronomy and talking about the absolute beauty of obedience. So in John chapter 5, Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda. There's a man there who's been crippled for 38 years. That's an important number. And Jesus is about to heal him. But first he asks the question, do you want to be healed? Now, Martin Luther King was getting ready to preach on this back in the early 1950s. And uh, he was sitting there wondering about what kind of question that happens to be. Actually, King's, many of his sermons, his hundreds of sermons and his sermon notes surviving online, some very rich material. So King says, it's odd that Jesus should ask a man who's been crippled for 38 years, do you want to be healed? And I want to read to you what he says. He says, actually, it's not such a strange question, for there are some advantages, I'm quoting now, to being a cripple. A cripple's not expected to work. He need carry no responsibility. He does not have to stand up to the pressure and demands of life like the well man. His friends are very tender. They wait on him, eagerly fulfilling his every wish. Hence, it happens occasionally that sick people unconsciously fall in love with being sick. They feel subconsciously, of course, that the advantages of being sick are more to be desired than the disadvantages of being healthy. Some people do not get well because deep down, they don't want to. And so he asks this question in this sermon. It's the question I'm asking. Are you prepared to accept the consequences of being a well man? So at the beginning of this series, I asked you to write down three areas where you wanted God to strengthen your obedience 
in the year 2021. I don't know what you've written down. I'm going to ask you to take a, a note card or go online and do it a little bit later in the lesson, but here's just some things that may have come to mind. That you're going to start praying every day. Maybe you're not doing that. That you want to stop watching R-rated, sexualized movies. This is the year you're going to say no to that. That you want to commit to disciple-making, Jesus' final mandate. That you're going to quit smoking. Maybe this is the year you've decided, I'm going to try, stop trying to control other people for my happiness, or I'm going to break my addiction to social media and that constant like button. I'm going to start attending Celebrate Recovery. I got something I need help with. Maybe this is the year you're going to make a decision to follow Jesus and, and seal that in the act of baptism, or you're going to small, join a small group, or you want to give more generously to the church, or you want to lose weight. This is a year you're going to break an internet addiction. I put that in quotes because we have children here. You know what I mean. This is the year. You're going to control your temper. This year, you're going to be faithful in your church attendance. By the way, online faithfulness is important too. So, a lot of you uh, have been on the online campus. And by the way, we just encourage you to stay on the online campus. But I do want to warn you that sometimes it's not very far from pajama church to Netflix. So make sure that you stay in your pajamas and stay with us on Sundays. This is the year you're going to honor your parents, even when they, maybe they don't seem all that bright. This is the year you're going to rejoice in the Lord always. What I want you to see is that this is a year for us to discover again the beauty of obedience. And I don't want the sermon on Deuteronomy to be just a sermon about the late Bronze Age. It's written for us. This book is written for us so that you can discover the beauty of obedience in your life. And if you hear the book of Deuteronomy and fail to obey God, not only have I failed you as a preacher, you're worse off than if you had never heard it. Because now you've learned to hear the Word of God and be disobedient. So what are the three areas where you intend to grow in obedience to God? And let me tell you one reason why a lot of us haven't grown. So this is true for me. I told you I'm going to probably tell you mine at some point. I can't hold it in. Maybe not today. But the reason many of us have not grown in our obedience is because we like our disobedience. And that's what we have to be honest about. We like our addictions. We don't do our addictions because we don't like them. We, like, we do them because we like them. We like our secret sins. We like trying to control other people or we like being dishonest or we like that sensual indulgence of watching whatever you want to watch on, again, Netflix to pick on somebody. And so what we have to cultivate is trust that God's way is better than our way in the long run and that God will give us the strength to do what He commands us to do. Trust is the critical factor in obedience. Look, it's hard enough to obey God when you trust Him because so many of His commands are countercultural to us. They don't, they don't seem normal in a broken world. For example, turning the other cheek doesn't seem normal. Even when you love Jesus, it doesn't seem normal. But when you don't trust God, obedience is impossible. So what I want you to see in this book of Deuteronomy today, towards the end of the first chapter and into the second chapter, is that trust will become the critical factor for your ability to obey God. And when you obey God, He'll give you the land of promise. Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. We just finished the opening 25 verses of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. 
The children of Israel have just only a matter of a few months before left slavery in Egypt. They're camped at a place called Kadesh Barnea, and they're looking northward into the land of promise, and they're just about to go. And you'll recall Moses' last words to them back in verses 23, 4, and 5. Don't be afraid, and don't be discouraged. Let's go, boys. And everything looks really good until you get to verse 26. And then it totally breaks down. So let's read from 26. I would encourage you to have a Bible in your lap, even though it's on the, uh, the uh, screen in front of you or the wall behind me. Nothing beats having your own Bible in your own lap and hearing the Word of God. But you were unwilling to go up. So they're ready to go. Moses is chronicling how they got to where they are. He's telling about events that happened 38 years before this was written. And he's saying, we were just about to take the land and you guys rebelled. You didn't trust. So he says, you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw Anakites there. You can imagine, this is like your two-year-old just having a temper tantrum, just working themselves up. So Israel has sent spies into the land. The spies came back and said, look, the clusters of grapes are so large, it takes two guys to carry one cluster. It's an amazing land that God has promised us. He promised it to our fathers and our forefathers all the way back to Abraham. But there are tall people there. Amorites are there. There are walls that go up to the heavens, and the people hit a panic button because they don't trust God. I want to talk just a little bit about the text. Again, not to go too much into the historical background. We know something about the Amorites, and they're going to recur in the book of Deuteronomy. So let me say a word about them. In the last 50 or 60 years, a number of ancient texts have been translated and uh, Archaeological work has sort of been uncovered that helps us to understand that this Amuru people, these Amorite people were scattered across what we call Syria and Iraq, but they were sort of like roving tribes. Think almost like Vikings in the 8th and 9th century if you were living in Ireland. They would just shut, suddenly show up and just wipe out whole territories and then build a city there. And they came to be hated people. By the time of Moses, they were living in the mountains in central uh, Israel, and that's exactly where the Israelites were going, which means that the Israelites were going to have to fight the Amorites. By the way, after the time of Joshua and the judges, Amorites disappear from history. We don't hear from, about them ever again. They're over except for what's written in Scripture. So when the 12 tribes came back, the 12 spies came back, after 40 days of serving, surveying the land, they said, look, it's a great land, but there are these monster cities and these monster people there. The Anakites, by the way, were just tall people from the Hebron area, but they were so tall they had a legend, and it scared, it terrified the Israelites. And I do want you to get a sense of what a city might have looked like in uh, the days of Moses as the Israelites were coming into the land of promise. This is an artist's reconstruction of the Israelite city of Lachish. So imagine if you were a slave two years ago, and your father was, and your grandfather was, and you've never actually seen a walled city because the Egyptians never walled a city. They didn't have to. Suddenly, you're coming into the land of Israel, and there are these massive walls of cities on top of mountains, and you're a former slave. 
You don't have to imagine too much. These are the actual walls from about 3,500 years ago. These are the actual walls of Tel Arad. The city is named A-R-A-D, Arad. And these walls were actually the walls that the spies looked at. So we're actually looking at history here. And when they saw them, they came back and told the Israelites, there's no way we can do this. Ten of the twelve. No way we can do it. And the people hit the panic button. And their problem was they didn't believe that God's way was better than their way. And they didn't believe God would give them the strength they needed. And that's always the problem with obedience. Is we don't think God's way is as good as our way. Go through all the lists. We don't, the list I just started out with. In every one of those, what we really do think deep down inside is, I know better than God knows. Or if not that, I would do it, but I've tried so many times, I just don't think I can do it. We don't believe God will give us the strength that we need. This was the breakdown of obedience, and it was really bad. If you want background, go to Numbers 14. So Deuteronomy is just a summary of what happened. Numbers 14 tells a longer version of it. And listen to the kinds of things that the people said in Numbers chapter 14. They said, look, let's get a new leader and let's just go back to being slaves. I mean, that's like coming out of your cocaine addiction and saying, you know what? It was a whole lot better when I was a cocaine addict. Let's find another dealer. That's exactly what they're doing. They don't believe it's better to be free. They don't believe God's promised land is better than the land of slavery. And it got worse because they had a little committee meeting in which they talked about stoning Moses. We'll just kill the guy. Let's just go back. If you remember from other texts, they say, oh, we remember the onion and cucumber soup we used to have back in Egypt. I'm just telling you, if that's better to you than freedom, you got real problems. They just didn't trust that God's promised land was better than what they had. And so they rebelled. So I'm underscoring a truth here, and you have to ask yourself a question about it. Do you trust God enough to obey Him? And do you trust that God will give you the strength you need when you obey? Well, we have a lot of texts, so I'm going to move quickly. We have the notes that are available to you either online or you can pick them up. And you'll see I can skip stuff because I've already written it down. Let's go to verse 29 and let's read a section. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who's going before you will fight for you as He did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And in the wilderness, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In other words, if you remember that God took care of you in the past, surely you can have some confidence he'll take care of you going forward. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said... He was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation will see the good land I swore to give you except your, uh, give your ancestors, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. So just pause for a moment. Moses says, look, because you guys rebelled and would not trust God, God said, all right, now, he doesn't say it in this text, but he says it back in Numbers chapter 14. He says, it took 40 days for you to spy the land. For every day your spies spied the land, you're going to have to wander in a desert for 40 years. By the way, since they'd already spent two years, that ended up with 38 years of wandering still to go, which is an interesting tie-in to how long the paralytic was lame, 38 years. 
there may not be a coincidence there. And so the Lord says, I'm not going to let a single one of you go into my promised land because you don't trust me. And then he says, well, only two, Caleb and Joshua, the two spies who gave a positive report and said, we can do this. God will fight for us. He'll be on our side. Verse 39, and the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. And I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out towards the desert along the route of the Dead Sea. So Moses is telling a history in this sermon. This is the first sermon of three in Deuteronomy. He's given a history lesson. He's reminding them of how they got there. Moses is preaching this sermon to the children of the people who rebelled. All of them are dead now. So everybody he just talked about, they're all dead. 38 years later, they're dead, and he's now preaching the sermon to their children and saying, this is what your parents did. This is why you had to live for, for 40 years in refugee camps. And he says, look, you're going to have to wander the desert for the next 38 years. Turn around and head back. And by the way, in this Negev, in this desert, the southern desert, it's like the Mojave. It's scorpions and snakes and not a tree to be found. It's a, it's a really dreadful place. Now, Watch what happens. Though they didn't trust God at first, they suddenly decided, wait, wait, wait. Give us a second chance. Verse 41. It's actually kind of, um, well, it's not comical, but it's sad. You replied, we've sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons thinking it would be easy to go up to the hill country. But the Lord said to me, tell them do not go up and fight because it will not be, I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the Lord's command and your arrogance, you marched up to the hill country. The Amorites who lived in those hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees. And beat you down from Sierra all the way to Hormah. We don't know what Hormah is, but we do know where Sierra is. Sierra is the land where Edom lives. It's south of the Dead Sea. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. Now, verse 1 of chapter 2, and we'll take a pause. Then we turned back and set out toward the wilderness along the route of the Red Sea as the Lord had directed me. For a long time we made our way around the hill country of Seir. Thirty-eight years passed between verse 1 of chapter 2 and verse 2 of chapter 2. Thirty-eight years. So Moses has just been going through the history of how we got here. Now, 38 years pass. They're in the Kadesh Barnea area. And now it's time for them to go up on the east side of the Jordan River and cross over and take the land of promise. 38 years have passed. By the way, it's, um, I, I love the history of it. I love the, the geography and the geology of it. So I have to be really careful not to just take you through too much of that, although some of you like that as well. But I will, I will just point out something that's going on in the text here. So the Israelites are going to follow a road called the King's Highway, which is still there. Actually, I've traveled on the road. It's still there today. It's a paved road today. It's a major interstate in the country of Jordan. But what you may not notice is that this, uh, what's called the Transjordan or the east part of Jordan is divided by these gorges, which are often called rivers, but they're more like gorges. That is, they're wadis. They fill with water only when it rains and otherwise they're dry. The gorges are very deep, sometimes five, six, seven hundred feet deep. That makes them, at least in the ancient world, virtually impassable. 
some of you all know this, but if you lived in North Carolina or Virginia in the year 1800, the Cumberland Plateau was impassable to you. We look at it, it's like, well, 700 feet, you know, we just drive up, it's no big deal. But back then, if you had wagons and animals and so forth, 700 feet, was, it was impassable. And finally, when Daniel Boone discovered, quote, discovered the Cumberland Gap, the whole western part of the country opened up. That's Kentucky and Tennessee, et cetera. But they needed that opening. Well, in the same way, in the ancient world, these gaps, these, these uh, huge gulfs, uh, gulfs, as we would say here in the south, these canyons, they divided regions. So Edom went up to the Zared River. Moab went up to the Arnon River, Ammon went up to the Yabbok River, and Gilead went up to the Yarmouk River. These were natural barriers that divided people groups. What you're going to see is Moses and the Israelites start here and they work their way up. In fact, the next readings just chronicle how they work their way up, again, on what's called the King's Highway, a major road that leads its way up. So we're just going to knock these out quickly, and then we're going to get to the application part of the lesson. Let's start in verse 2 of chapter 2. And by the way, I've talked a lot about some of the people group. I gave you a handout last week on some of the people group in the book of Deuteronomy. In the notes, I have a little bit about them, and that'll let me go quickly. But I want us to read the whole text. Here we go. Then the Lord said to me, you have made your way around this hill country long enough. So 38 years have passed. Now turn north. Give the people these orders. You're about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, but be very careful. Do not provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land, not even for you to put a foot on. I've given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. You're to pay them in silver for the food you eat and the water you drink. The Lord, has, the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He's watched over your journey through this vast wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have not lacked anything. So we went on past our relatives, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. We turned from the Arab Road, which comes up from Elot and Ezion Geber. By the way, both those cities are still there. Elot on the Jordanian side. I mean, you can throw a rock from one city to the next. And Ezion Geber on the other side, the Israeli side. They're both of them there right at the top of the Gulf of Aqaba. And the road goes all the way up to Damascus from there. This is the road they're traveling. And they travel along the desert road of Moab. So Esau's descendants got that southern part, which is just, again, to the south of the Dead Sea. They're cousins to the Israelites. So God says, don't fight them. They're your cousins. By the way, the rocks in the area that's called Seir or Edom are reddish and appear in a number of American movies, especially movies about Mars because the landscape looks like Martian landscape. And the word Edom actually means red. So not only was Esau reddish when he was born, something I know a little bit about, but also he lived in a land where all the rocks were red. So it looks kind of like a Martian landscape. So God says, look, they're your kinfolk. Just pay them and get on through. He moves to their next kinfolk, which are the Moabites. So the Moabites were the descendants of Lot, who was a nephew of Abraham. And the Ammonites were also descendants of Lot, who was a nephew of Abraham. So the next two people groups are also cousins. Then the Lord said to me, do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war, for I will not give you any part of their land. I've given art to the descendants of Lot as a possession. Then he gets into people groups, most of which we don't know anything about. The Emites used to live there, a, strong, uh, a, a people strong and numerous, as tall as the Anakites. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephaites, but the Moabites called them Emites. Horites used to live in Seir, 
But the descendants of Esau drove them out. They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel did in the land of the Lord, uh, that the Lord gave them their possession. And the Lord said, now get up and cross the Zered Valley. That's the next of those valleys that I pointed out earlier. So we crossed the valley. 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zered Valley. By then, that entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp uh, as the Lord had sworn to them. So we've moved, we've moved now out of Edom. We're now in the land of Moab, this little area between the Zered and the Arnan Gorges. And they're getting ready to move up now to the land of Ammon, an, another cousin group to the Israelites. The Lord's hand was against them until they completely eliminated them from the camp. Now, when the last of the fighting men among the people had died, the Lord said to me, today you're to pass the region of Moab at Ar. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them. I'm make sure I'm keeping up with it here. I've given it as a possession to the land of the descendants of Lot. That too was considered a land of the Rephaites who used to live there. But the Ammonites called them the Zamzamites. We know virtually nothing about most of these people groups. Uh, they were all eliminated. They were people strong and numerous, as tall as the Anakites. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites who drove them out and settled in their place. The Lord had done the same for the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They drove them out and have lived in their place to this day. And as for the uh, Avites who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorites coming out of Kaftor destroyed them and settled in their place. Stop. Verse 23. Let me just summarize the last uh, 23 verses. Because all the ites and the, this people group and that people group, it, it, it does get, it's a lot. Here's the theology. So we're going to learn to do this. Always look for the theology behind the history of the Bible. Because the Bible's not interested in history unless the history teaches you how to live. That's why so much history is not in there. What's the theology behind this text? The theology is that God is the one who raises up nations and he's the one who destroys them. So what that means is no matter who is president, God's in charge, whichever president. It does, whoever is leading whichever country you want to pick, God's still in charge and God will raise them up and he will bring them down. God makes those calls. He makes those decisions. We are but grasshoppers to him. So that's the theology going on here. It's an affirmation that God is still in charge and that matters because he's calling us to obey him, something you cannot do if you don't trust him. So now we're going to end the lesson by going back to our theme, which is trust. And I want to start by asking you to do something. On your pew, if you're in the in-person service, and online, if you're on the online, in the online campus, there is this green button online. There's in your pew, there's a little tiny uh, sheet of paper. I might have, yeah, I brought one with me. I want to ask you to do something. So take a moment. Everybody take a breather. We've had enough Kaftorites and Ammonites and Horites. And... That's an unfortunate word. It should have been hurrying, but anyway. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you anonymously. Don't put your name on it. Anonymously. Use your, if you're right-handed, use your left hand if you want to. Like, I don't want to know who wrote what. Online, you can make this anonymous. Please just make it anonymous. I don't want to know who wrote what. But I'd like to ask you to write the three, or in my case, I reduced it to two because that's all I can handle. Commitments you're making 
to grow in obedience in 2021. I want you to write it down. Do it now, if you will. We just click on it right now. I think you can click on it and come back to us. If you click on it, it takes you away and you lose it and you have to log back in, then um, the next 30 seconds won't be worth that much. So you won't miss that much. I'm going to ask you to drop these in a basket if you're present as you leave. And I'm going to take them. I'm going to pray over them. And then I'm going to use them as sermon notes going forward. That's why I don't want you to put your name on it. So if you put something on there, this is what I've decided to do this year. This is the commitment I'm asking. I want to preach about it. I want to help you. So if you say, you know, my, my thing this year is, you know, this, this year I'm going to have a family devotional every day. I, I want to talk about that. I want to help you with that. If you put it online, besides the people who help me collect those online, I'll be the only one who sees them. And anybody I share them with when I preach about it. But my point is, I'd like for you to take it seriously for a moment. And then I want to ask the question, why do we have to do an exercise like this? Why is obedience difficult? So I said this in an earlier lesson, that obedience in a broken world feels like you're going up the down escalator. You know, I dreamt about that last night. I literally, I dreamt for, it must have been an hour that I was trying to get to the top of a down escalator. I'm no kidding. I dreamed about that. It's the most frustrating dream. I, I just, I couldn't get up there. And there were crowds of people coming down. They were mad at me. Um, some of you were there <laughs> uh, coming down the down escalator. It's like, oh my goodness, it's so hard to be obedient. But I want to tell you, one of our main problems is we don't really trust God. I'm, think about it. We're not sure that his way is better than ours. Th take this one as an example. So you've made the decision, there's somebody who has wounded you deeply in your past, you need to forgive them and let go of it. But you can't do it because you're afraid it won't end well. You're afraid that doing the right thing may cost you too much. I just want you to know that's a lack of trust, that you really don't trust that God's got this thing and that you actually have come to believe, I'm sorry to say this, I don't mean this ugly because I got my own, mine are very visible to you. But you've come to believe that living with fear is better than living with peace. You're ready to go back to Egypt. You'd rather go back to Egypt than to let that baby go because you're afraid you don't trust that God will take care of it. Or you got a bad habit. You've come to believe that fast food, you know, smooth on the lips, forever on the hips. You've come to believe that if you will have that food, it will solve at least for a few moments every problem. It'll just go away. You won't think about it anymore. You've come to believe that temporary, momentary pleasure is better than eternal, deep, and rich joy. You know how I know that? Because I'm struggling with it too. It's a question of trust. Do I really trust that God's way is better than my way? And do I trust He'll give me the strength to do what He says? If I don't trust Him, it becomes impossible to obey him. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. You got those things written down? First, I want to challenge you to make up your mind. Um, and don't be this. Don't be a spiritual hypochondriac. So this is what King said in, that, in those notes of that sermon he was writing. He said that honest truth is some of us would prefer to be sick. There are people who would rather be sick. There are people who would rather have their addiction, bring their life short, cut their life short by their bad addictions, their bad habits. They'd rather do that. 
than to enjoy the peace and the freedom that comes from doing it God's way. Honestly, I think you need to look inside because a whole lot of our bad habits, a whole lot of the things that we know to do that we don't do, it's because we are happier being broken. Let go of it. You only get one shot at life. You're only going to go one time. Why not have the adventure of a lifetime? By trusting God. And I'm just going to say this, and I'll say it again. God knows what you need better than you do. God knows you need to forgive that person. He knows that. He knew that before you knew it. And, he, and, and by the way, you don't just need to forgive that person so you will feel better. Not everything's premised on how you're going to feel. You need to forgive that person because you want God to forgive you. I mean, God knows what we need. He knows that pleasure might be more intense than joy, but it doesn't last near as long. That joy is always better than pleasure. God knows that fear might be a stronger motivator, but that peace is eternal. God knows those things. Let me give you just one illustration. Watching sexualized R-rated movies. You know, it's time we get a handle on this, my friends. It's rampant. And that for a lot of us, we think, well, it doesn't make that much difference. It's not that big a deal. So I don't know what it is. You know, today you can stream everything, anything, anytime. And we've come to believe. Here's what we've persuaded ourselves of. We've persuaded ourselves that we can watch those sorts of things and it won't have any effect on us. That's what we think. Meanwhile, we look around us and we see a nation that's crumbling. And I'll tell you why it's crumbling. In part, it's crumbling because our families are falling apart. When you don't have the basic DNA of a society, and that is a strong, healthy family, a society cannot stand. And why is it that the family is falling apart? It's because we've sexualized everything. I mean, what about those texts? What about Psalm 103 where David says, Lord, don't put anything vile in front of my eyes. How about Ephesians 5 and verse 3 where Paul says, don't even let there be a hint of sexual sin in your life. Not even a hint. Not even a suggestion. And you may think to yourself, well, I can watch. It's not that big a deal. What happens when 330 million of us start doing it? I'll tell you what happens. We start having fatherless children who will never get over their rage. Never. We start having protests in the streets. We start having breakdowns. We start having little girls who, when they're 12 years old, suddenly think they're boys. You know why? Because they're living in a world where we broke it. We broke it. And every time we participate in this, we break it more. Do you not think God knew what he meant when he said one man, one woman in a committed married relationship for life? God didn't know what he meant. His way is better than our way. It's better than our way. I'm just suggesting trust God. Trust God with these things. He knows better than we do. And if you think to yourself, yeah, but I, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I mean, I've got bad habits in my life. I've tried repeatedly. Sometimes I get better, then I get worse. And, and I'm telling you, sometimes I just want to say, I give up. I can't do it. Don't. Don't give up. Trust that God not only knows what's better, but he'll give you the strength you need. Maybe the problem is that you, like the Israelites, after they rebelled, said, well, let's just go get the Amorites on our own. You're trying in your own strength, maybe. I don't want to indict everybody where you really could try in the strength of God. One of the beauties of our Celebrate Recovery, it starts with the statement, I realized I am powerless that I need God. 
That's where it starts. I just want to make two more really quick points, or well, two more. First of all, practice gratitude. I just want to say, um, man, this so this pandemic's been really hard on. It's been hard on us. We've lost that I know of. We've lost four members now who have died with at least COVID-related uh, illnesses. For the rest of us, the shutdown, the infernal masks, the now we're in church, now we're out of church, the fist fights over, do we, are we going to do this, are we going to do that? It's so exhausting. It's discouraging. And if you want obedience, don't focus on that which is discouraging. Think about gratitude. Remember all the things. Remember what, is, what does Moses say to the people? He says, don't forget the God who carried you like a child. When I look back and realize all the things God got me through. I mean, you know, I can't say I've had a hard life. I have had a charm life. But I've gotten through some. God's brought me through some hard moments. I want to look back and say thank you for that. It gives me the incentive to be grateful and to be trusting in the future. And on that subject, I just want to make sure we underscore this. When you grumble, complain, and backbite each other, you are breaking down trust. This matters in your home. It matters at church. So North Boulevard doesn't have a big problem with this, but I'm just going to say if you belong to a little huddle, a little team that likes to get together and criticize everything going on, I want to make sure you know two things. First of all, you are destroying people's trust and therefore undermining their obedience. And second, you're not going to heaven. Because that's what Paul says. People who do this, he says they don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of heaven because when you're complaining and grumbling all the time, you're undermining people's trust. It's very expensive when you do this. So let me end by saying this. Take that little card that you wrote. See it? And remind yourself that you have a new chapter in 2021. This is the year you can start. You have a new chapter. You with me? You know, when you're wearing masks, it's really hard to know if you're even paying any attention. So I'm not going to ask you to pull your mask down, but will you just like move or something so I know, okay, yeah, they're still here. Breathe. And online, just breathe. Do something. Thank you. I can see you. And your nice PJs. I want you to do this. I want you to drop it in the basket on your way out. Again, I'll see it. And then people who help me collect it might see it as well. But here's the big deal. 2021 gives you a new chance. <laughs> to do it God's way, and His way is better than your way. And remind yourself not to quit, because you know what? Quitting, say that with me, it's in yellow. Quitting lasts forever. So if you've fallen down a hundred times, how many times should you get up? Yeah, I said 101, and I've had a mathematician say, no, you only have to get up a hundred times. My response to that is, well, if you're a minister, 101 times is even better than 100 times. If you fall down, get back up. God's way is better than our way. You can trust God's way, and you can trust that God will give you the strength you need to obey His will. Let's stand up and sing. If you have a need, go to the back. We'll have some folks back there waiting to pray with you. Go online. There's a place you can click to join either a men's prayer group or a women's prayer group. Right now, they'll pray with you right now. It's not eternal. You just pray with them, and then let's see what God does with that. Let's stand up.